Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing what is merit. This is chapter 10 in our group learning program. We're moving right along. This is chapter 10 from our book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. This is the book that we're using to guide our program that you can download for free, whether you're watching this on Facebook, YouTube, in our podcast, or wherever you're seeing this broadcast, there's a link that you can actually click and download this book for free. And if you would like a printed version or a Kindle version or audiobook version, those are all available as well. There's various locations and sites that you can access this material. Because what this group learning program in this book is all about is helping you to learn the teachings of Gautama Buddha to help you to evolve and train the mind towards this enlightened mental state. Gautama Buddha lived over 2,500 years ago. And during his lifetime, he was actually a prince destined to be a king. So he was very wealthy, living in a palace, and eventually decides to step down and become a roaming aesthetic, essentially a homeless person who roams around, doesn't have a house, doesn't have possessions, doesn't even have a job in terms of making money to acquire food or clothing or water, shelter, medical supplies, all of these kinds of things. So as part of this aesthetic life, he really needed people in order to provide him donations and help in order to sustain his life. Without being able to receive donations of support, he wouldn't have been able to sustain his life and offer these teachings to the world. So today we're going to be talking about what is merit and helping you understand what that means in terms of how it started with Gautama Buddha, how it's progressed for the last 2,500 years, what it means today, and then also how does it benefit you? Because there's a benefit for you in all of this as well, because it's part of the aspect of training the mind. So welcome to our class today. I'm really glad you're here. I'm really pleased that you've chosen to learn and practice the teachings of Gautama Buddha. And this topic of merit is one that's really going to connect a lot of things that we've already talked about in terms of Gautama Buddha's teachings. Because if you've been studying these teachings either somewhere else or definitely if you've been studying these me, one of the things that you know is that Gautama Buddha's teachings are all around this primary problem that he discovered with the mind, which is craving, desire, attachment. This mental longing 
where the mind has this strong eagerness to acquire certain things, it wants certain things, it expects certain things. And if the unenlightened mind doesn't get those things, then it becomes discontent. Or even if it does get those things, it still becomes discontent with the happiness and excitement and elation associated with it. So the unenlightened mind cycles through these painful feelings, these pleasant feelings, and these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Due to craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, the mind experiences these painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. It experiences these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, and elation. It experiences these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, which I consider to be like boredom or loneliness or shyness, these kind of feelings of, you know, kind of maybe even jealousy, but some people might consider that painful. The categorization of where you put these various individual feelings is really isn't that important. What's important to understand is the mind is going to experience these three feelings of painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant. And this is discontentedness of mind. Because the mind is not in the middle performing optimally and it lurching out and longing for this external pleasantness, this external seeking of pleasure, the mind is going to ultimately end up discontent. It's going to cause itself to be discontent. And it's only through training the mind to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment, this primary problem that Gautama Buddha discovered that we then can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in this enlightened mental state. We can experience this permanent mental state where the mind is concentrated, focused, have deep memory, clarity of thought. But it's only through training the mind to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment that the mind will move in that direction. And there's two antidotes that Gautama Buddha gave us in order to train the mind in that direction. One is breathing mindfulness meditation, which is a consistent daily practice that you should be doing once, twice, three times a day and build up your practice where you're doing more sessions, either starting with one and moving to two and moving to three per day, and then kind of expanding your sessions for longer and longer. This is going to actively train the mind to let go because that's what craving desire attachment is, is it's the mind's tendency to hold on. Sure, it's searching for external pleasures, but it's holding on to that thought and it's wanting that thought so badly or it's wanting that possession or that income or that boyfriend or girlfriend. And because the unenlightened mind is doing that, it's causing itself to be discontent. So breathing mindfulness meditation is training the mind to let go of thoughts and focus on the breath, among many other things that we're accomplishing in breathing mindfulness meditation. The other antidote that Gautama Buddha gave us in order to train the mind to let go is generosity. Generosity is the practice that we can do on a daily basis in our life to live open-handedly and share with others recognizing this interconnectivity that we have as beings and not holding on to things so tightly. Because the unenlightened mind wants to hold on to things very, very tightly. 
This is kind of the selfishness that we have coming out of this animal existences that a lot of us are born out of. We're born with this selfishness that we want to hold on to things and protect things. And we're not comfortable to just let things go. So breathing mindfulness meditation is the active training during meditation. But then in daily life, we need to be generous and giving and sharing and helping others with our time, our effort, our energy and our resources. And this will help to train the mind to let go and not hold on to things so tightly. This is part of the gamma. So one of the things that Gautama Buddha taught that we discussed last week is gamma or this natural law of gamma this cause and effect or action and result, essentially the result of our decisions. So by making the decision to meditate and do breathing mindfulness meditation on a regular basis and build up that practice, your gamma, the result of that decision is that your mind is going to become more calm, more peaceful, more serene, more content, more joyful because you're eliminating the mind's tendency to have this craving, desire, attachment. And then likewise, by making the decision to be generous with your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources, you're training the mind to let go. And part of your gamma, the result of your decision, is that by living that way, by sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources, the gamma that is returned to you is the mind reduces and ultimately eliminates this craving desire attachment that's the whole goal of this practice is eliminating that craving desire attachment along with all the other things that we're doing in this practice but this is the primary problem that Gautama buddha discovered so the primary solutions are breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity well in order for there to be generosity there needs to be the willingness to give and the interest to give And what merit is all about is it's this unique type of gamma. It's this unique type of way that you can give through generously offering your time, effort, energy, and resources to help people who are actually sharing the teachings of Gautama Buddha in order to help support and sustain their life so that they can then focus on practicing the teachings and then sharing those through their teachings. There's this community of practitioners that is generally referred to as the Sangha. This is a Pali word that we use in order to refer to the community at large, all the practitioners, the bhikkhus, the bhikkhanis, the household practitioners, anybody and everybody who's part of the community, we refer to them as the Sangha. Then there's what's called the bhikkhu Sangha, which is the ordained males. That's kind of a, you know, a subset of the entire community is the ordained males or bhikkhus. And then we have the bhikkhuni sangha or the female ordained practitioners, which is a subset of this larger community of practitioners. And then we have what's called the Aryan sangha, which is anyone who has attained one of the four stages of enlightenment. The four stages are the stream enterer, the once returner, the non-returner, and an arahant. These four stages of enlightenment, anyone who has attained one of those four stages are considered to be part of the Aryan Sangha. 
So we have the overall Sangha, but then we have this Bhikkhu, Bhikkhuni, and Aryan Sangha, the male ordained practitioners, female ordained practitioners, and then anybody who's attained one of the four stages of enlightenment. What merit is all about is practicing generosity in order to share time, effort, energy, and resources with these groups of people, the Bhikkhu Sangha, the Bikini Sangha, or the Aryan Sangha. Because it's these people who are dedicating their life to this practice of learning and sharing these teachings in order to help themselves, of course, but then also to help others on this path. Without the generosity of these individuals to dedicate their life to learning and practicing and sharing the teachings, anyone else who's interested in attaining enlightenment wouldn't be able to do it because there's nobody around who's actually dedicating their life to learning, practicing, and sharing the teachings with everyone else. So it's only when you support the Bhikkhu Sangha, the Bikini Sangha, and the Aryan Sangha that these teachers are then able to spend their life to learn and practice the teachings and then share it with others through things like this, this online program. So these individuals, because they're on the path and they've dedicated their life to that path, they're being generous with their time, effort, energy, and resources to share the teachings. And that's their offering to the community, to this larger Sangha. They're offering their time, effort, energy, and resources as a generous offering to anyone who's interested to learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment. But then in order to keep this going, the people who are receiving the teachings, they need to also make offerings to this Bhikkhu, Bikini, and Aryan Sangha so that they can actually focus their time and effort in sharing the teachings. Without this exchange of generosity, then these teachings would not have continued for 2,500 years. The only reason why we actually have access to these teachings today, right now in modern times, is that from the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, there were already people all throughout that region of the world that were sharing offerings with all the various aesthetics. You know, Gautama Buddha wasn't the first aesthetic. There were multiple people that were trying to attain enlightenment or had even claimed that they had attained enlightenment during his lifetime. So there were people that were supporting these roaming aesthetics that were kind of giving up worldly possessions and on this path to enlightenment. And as the Buddha stepped forward and said that, you know, he had accomplished enlightenment to these five aesthetics that he once knew and he started teaching them, he lived his entire life based on the generosity of the people in the community. So they provided food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical supplies for him and all of the people who were learning with him, his disciples, the bhikkhus and the bhikkhunis. And from that time, over 2,500 years ago, all the way until today, there has been countless offerings of food, water, clothing, shelter, medical supplies, even land and donations of temples. And this is how all these temples get built in the world is that people come together, they 
pull together their resources, offering them generously, and then they build and construct these temples, which essentially become community centers for people to go into and actually learn. And there's teachers like me and there's ordained teachers that are in these temples that are there for people to come and learn if you choose. And it's the practitioners that are choosing to step forward to actually request and ask for teachings from the teachers. But without this exchange of generosity where teachers from the Bhikkhu, Bikini, and Aryan Sangha are stepping forward and giving up their life as a career or any kind of pursuit for wealth or material possessions by giving up that and dedicating time on themselves to learn and practice the teachings, they are then in a position to be a very good teacher for the community that they serve. And it's the community that they serve that is benefiting from their teachings. So then the community makes offerings to the teachers in order to help them continue their practice and continue to sustain life. And anyone who's sharing these teachings in a genuine way should not be setting a price for people to learn teachings. There's no such thing as there's a menu in order to attain enlightenment. You know, there's package A, package B, and package C, or charging a set price to necessarily come to a class. What we're seeing in today is we're seeing more and more communities starting to have a price. Even within the Buddhist community, you're seeing temples that are charging $25 for a class or $50 or $300 for a retreat or $800 for a retreat or what have you. And the only reason why this is actually starting is because since Gautama Buddha's lifetime until now, 2,500 years later, people are kind of getting farther and farther and farther away from the teachings. And people are becoming more and more and more stingy or selfish and just kind of learning the teachings, but they're not making any offerings to help continue the teaching. So the teachers can be giving, 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 and very generous of their time, effort, energy, and resources in order to share these teachings. But if there's not the reciprocal generosity from the community, then the teachers can no longer sustain themselves through generosity because the generosity isn't being shared back with them. So we're starting to see places that are sharing the teachings and setting a price for actual classes or for a certain session of learning or even online learning, there's places that are doing that. I haven't chosen to do that because I would like to instead teach you the proper practice as existed during the lifetime of the Buddha. The Buddha didn't set a price for his teaching. And that's why I don't set a price for my teaching because we all need to move closer and closer to what it is that Gautama Buddha taught. The reason why we're not seeing massive numbers of people in our communities that are attaining enlightenment is because we've gotten further and further and further away from his teachings. And as long as we continue to expect and like and be interested in teachers offering these teachings freely and openly without any price, then the students and practitioners have to do their part. They have to do their part in order to share 
their generosity with the people who are sharing the generosity with them. It's like two hands coming together to show respect and gratitude to each other. So the teachers can come forward and offer all this generosity and share the teachings using their time, effort, energy, and resources. But if there's not the equal or even some reciprocal sharing of generosity and gratitude and appreciation and respect for the amount of time, effort, energy, and resources that the teachers are using, then there isn't this coming together of the community in order to share these teachings openly in the community, freely in the community, for them to continue. So it's important that as we learn and practice these teachings, that we understand that teachers are not going to pass around a basket and ask for people to donate. Teachers aren't going to openly say, okay, give me money now. This is the right time to give money. Teachers aren't going to say that because we don't have desire for wealth. We don't have craving for selfish pursuits. We're not interested in filling up our pockets. We're not interested in riding around in a Mercedes or a BMW or having some big mansion somewhere. That's not what somebody who's genuinely on this path and sharing these teachings in a genuine way, they're not going to be interested in that whatsoever. They're only going to be interested in enough donations to sustain their life. And essentially, that's food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical supplies. But in order to share these teachings freely and openly, there needs to be a community of people who's gathered around the teacher in order to support that teacher in the effort that they're making to share these teachings in the community. In order to get these teachings to come into our community, we have to support them coming into our community. Now, you guys may know that the Thai people have temples all throughout the world. I'm very familiar with America, of course, because that's where I grew up. I know that in North America, there's at least a hundred, if not more, Thai temples. At one time, back in 1973, they built the very first temple in 1973 in Los Angeles, California. And then in 1974, they built the next one in Washington, D.C., on the two sides of the coast. But then they've proliferated more and more temples throughout all of North America. The only reason why the Thais built temples in those places is because during the Vietnam War, as U.S. soldiers were coming to Thailand and they were fighting in Vietnam, American soldiers were marrying Thai women and Thai men, and then they were moving back to America, and there was more and more Thais coming into America. And as the Thai people started to establish life there, they were interested in having the Buddhist teachings come into America to support their community. Because as you've probably discovered, that these teachings really support you in your everyday life. They teach you how to have good relationships. They teach you how to have a good career. They teach you how to have a better way of life. So when the Thai people started ending up in America and moving to America as part of what they needed to sustain their life and have a better way of life, they started asking and requesting monks to come to America and start establishing temples. But the monks are not going to just go there. The teachers are not going to just go to a certain venue and start teaching. It needs to be requested by the actual students. 
So the Thai people, and I'm sure some Americans as well and other nationalities, got together in various groups within America. They pulled together their resources and they started to purchase land and build temples in order to support the people who were moving into America. And now, 45 years later, we've got over 100 temples throughout America, which the Thai people are benefiting from, yes, but also the people of North America as well. And it's important that when you go into temples, it's important that when you come in contact with the teacher, it's important if you have a teacher that's dedicating their time and effort to really help you, that you reciprocate that generosity with offerings because it's only those people over the last 2,500 years that have been making those generous offerings that the teachings have actually come to you. So in effect, the only reason why you're getting the teachings today is because of the generosity of all the people before you. They've paid it forward. So people in all these years have been dedicating their time, effort, energy, and resources in order to continue the teachings to the point of today. And what you decide to do in order to bring these teachings into your life and practice generosity to support these teachings with your time, effort, energy, and resources, that will allow the teachings to continue and then make them available for future generations as we continue forward in humanity. So I would like to pause here and see if you guys have any questions on anything that we've been discussing so far. Hi, David. We have a question from Javier. He asks, what about charity? Is it better to support teachers and monks than giving to charity organizations? So there's two different things that we're kind of talking about here. One is generosity, right? And the benefit of generosity in our own mind that by being generous, by sharing food with your family and your friends and your strangers and uh, helping people with your time, effort, energy, and resources, that's generosity. And you can practice that with everyone and anyone. In fact, Gautama Buddha is famous for talking about how he said if people understood the benefits of sharing and being generous as he did, there would be no meal that you would ever sit down to eat that you wouldn't share with another person. Even if it was your last bite of food, he said you would be willing to share it if you understood the benefits of generosity and sharing. So that's one topic that we're talking about here. And we've talked about it before as it relates to craving, desire, attachment as an antidote to these three poisons. But what we're talking about today is kind of one step beyond that, which is merit or practicing generosity towards bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, and teachers who are taking their time, effort, energy, and resources to share the teachings. Because yes, we should practice generosity in everything that we do in our life, whether it's sharing a potato chip with a friend or family or somebody who's close by or doing charitable work or applying time, effort, energy, and resources to help others. That's generosity. But we also need to ensure that we're directing a certain amount of this generosity towards helping the people that are actually sharing these teachings in the world. That's what merit is, is practicing generosity towards the people who are actually sharing the teachings. Because if all we ever did was send our generosity to charitable 
events and these teachings didn't continue in the world, then we would lose the ability to actually have these teachings in the world and be shared worldwide. And what's the benefit of these teachings? Well, they teach people how to eliminate discontentedness. These are the teachings that eliminate sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, loneliness, boredom, resentment, shyness, jealousy, all of these discontent feelings. If we don't practice generosity in the direction of the sustaining of these teachings, then humanity will lose the ability for these teachings to continue. And the only reason why they have continued this far is because there has been a practice of generosity. But what's been happening over the last five, 10 years or so is that we're losing more and more of that generosity. And what you're seeing is there's venues that are starting to have to put a price on things, charging for Dhamma talks, charging for meditation retreats, charging for these various things because there isn't a free selfless giving from the community of practitioners where for all these 2,500 years, all these teachers and ordained practitioners have just been freely giving and giving and giving and giving more and more and more. The community of practitioners have not been. And this is why we're now starting to see people charging Right. Even like here in Thailand, if you have a funeral in the old days, you know, if you had a funeral, you just made offerings to the ordained practitioners or anybody that you asked to be involved. You would just generously make an offering. But because that has gotten farther and farther away, now the temples are starting to have to charge a price to the household practitioners just to have a funeral at the temple because they're isn't this free open-handed giving that the Buddha taught. And because there isn't this free open-handed giving, enlightenment and the ability to attain enlightenment is diminishing more and more. Because when you set a price for something and you pay that price, you're not cultivating generosity, right? When you go out and you buy clothes or you buy a phone or you buy a house or you buy a car, you're purchasing something and you're getting equal or more value for your money. You're gaining something from this transaction of I give money and therefore I get something in return. But in order to attain enlightenment, you have to cultivate this gratitude, this appreciation, this respect, this interest to openly give without any expectation of anything in return. So that's what's going to cultivate the relinquishment of this craving, desire, attachment that's in the mind. Because the unenlightened mind is only going to want to give when it gets something in return. And that's the transaction that occurs. But in order to attain enlightenment, you have to be willing to give without any expectation of a return. So if what we move to in the Buddhist community is all these teachers and all these temples are charging a price for their service. And then the practitioners are paying that price. Then we've got a log jam and we're not going to see massive numbers of people attaining enlightenment throughout the world. And what we need to move towards is the model that Gautama Buddha set up, which is teachers actively and generously giving their time, effort, energy, and resources freely, generously, 
without any expectation of a return. That's what the teachers need to do. And the practitioners need to generously give to these teachers in order to create merit, in order to create this wholesome benefit of giving open-handedly without any expectation of return. And that's going to then benefit you that it's going to eliminate this craving desire attachment. This is going to teach the mind to openly share and not hold on to things so tightly. It's going to teach the mind about this interconnectivity among all beings, right? So you can still accomplish that through just pure generosity and charitable events, but that alone isn't going to allow the continuation of these teachings. So what we're talking about today is, yes, generosity, but also directing it towards efforts that are going to continue the teachings in humanity in order to help liberate countless people to enlightenment through these teachings of Gautama Buddha. And the only way we accomplish that is if we support the temples, if we support the bhikkhus, the bhikkhunis, and any teachers that are sharing the teachings of Gautama Buddha. Thank you, David. We do have a few more questions, but I think you might be about to cover them in the next section. So I suggest we wait until the next time you break. Okay, sounds good. So let's move into some things that I kind of prepared for you guys to ensure that I'm touching on the points that we discussed. Here, I'm just kind of providing a definition to help you understand what these various terms are that I'm using. So what merit is, is it's wholesome gamma. Remember, gamma is cause and effect, action result, essentially the result of our decisions. So merit is the wholesome gamma generated through generous offerings and gifts to the community of bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, and anyone who has attained one of the four stages of nibbana. This community of people is referred to as the Aryan Sangha. Okay, the community of people who are dedicating their life to learning and practicing these teachings and then offering them back to the community as a way of helping to liberate as many people as possible on this path to enlightenment. Merit is generated by making offerings of money, supplies, food, time, effort to support the sharing of Gautama Buddha's teachings because it's only in continuing these teachings in the world that more and more of the world is going to be liberated through the attainment of enlightenment. And it's the Aryan Sangha, these people who have attained one of the four stages of enlightenment, including the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, even though all of them haven't attained one of those four stages, those are the ones who are responsible for guiding others to attain enlightenment. So as a bhikkhu, an ordained male, there's people there that have attained enlightenment and people that haven't but they've dedicated their life to pursuing this path for whatever period of time. It's not a lifetime ordination, but it can be if they would like it to be. And then there's bikinis or female ordained practitioners that some are enlightened and some aren't. And they're also have dedicated a significant portion of their life in order to learn and practice these teachings and then share them with the community. And then there's kind of Overall, people who have attained one of the four stages of Nibbana or enlightenment, maybe people who 
are a bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, but also there's people that are household practitioners and teachers from the household practitioners who are in this Aryan Sangha who are choosing to learn and practice these teachings deeply and then share them with the community and help more and more and more people to learn and practice these teachings. One of the things to keep in mind here is Gautama Buddha never set up a centralized organization to collect his teachings and disseminate them and everything comes from the top, so to speak, like a centralized organization. He never set that up and it's never been set up as part of this 2,500 years of history. So there isn't just one person sitting at the top dictating what should and shouldn't be done and all the money funneled us into that organization. That's not how these teachings work at all. What you've got is independent individual temples and teachers and groups of people who are moving around and learning teachings from various people and then offering those teachings. So for me as a teacher, there's nobody above me that I'm reporting into. There's no centralized organization that when someone makes donations to me, that I'm giving some of that money to them to support that organization. When people make offerings to me, I use that to pay for things like the Zoom membership, the ability to have the technology to distribute and live stream out to Facebook and YouTube. I use it for things like purchasing this computer, which I had to purchase in order to actually do this program because my original computer didn't have enough processing power. I use it to purchase things like lights and things like this and also things to sustain my life because I've now given up my career. I no longer pursue a career in order to make money to support my clothing, my food, my shelter, and things like this. But what I've done is I've brought the way that I live my life down to kind of a bare minimum where I can spend just $10 for a shirt and a pair of pants. So $5 for the shirt, $5 for the pants. And I don't care because I just need simple clothing to cover the body. I don't need to have some high fashion. I just need fabric to cover the body. And then with food, I just buy simple food in order to sustain my life. And I live a very simple life. I don't you know, go out with this life of luxury. I just live very meagerly and very simply so that the donations that are given to me go to sustaining my life, food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical supplies. But then I can use the bulk of that money in order to put it right back into resources like the Zoom membership, the various expenses. There's so many. I was going to try to list off all the expenses, but I don't actually keep them in my mind. I publish them through Patreon. So anybody who is a donor, they can see how I'm spending the money. But there's just a litany of expenses that I incur in order to host training like this. So that's just the generosity that I share without any expectation of any return. But in order to sustain this type of teaching, there does need to be a significant amount of time, effort, energy, and resources that I share in order to share these teachings into a community. And what a community will typically do is then provide donations to that teacher because that teacher is helping you and benefiting your life. So it's important that you support that person as well. And that's a personal choice that you 
need to make. I never, in these program or all of my teaching, I never pass around a bowl. I never set the expectation that everyone needs to donate their time, effort, energy, or resources to me. But if you do, just know that I'm going to be using it for good, wholesome things, good, wholesome things that are needed in order to sustain the continuation of these teachings within our community. This is some words from Gautama Buddha of what he shared, and he shared a lot on generosity. In fact, this book here, I don't know if you guys can see that, is all about giving. And this is just a short little kind of Cliff Notes version of all the teachings that the Buddha gave around giving and generosity and why that's important. This particular passage that I decided to share with you guys is all based on talking about generosity and the benefit that it has for you. Because what he shares here in his words is, in what is accomplishment in generosity? Here, a noble disciple dwells at home with a mind free from the stain of miserliness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. This is called accomplishment in generosity. Okay, what he's sharing here is that we need to reside without this stain of miserliness. What miserliness is, is kind of this excessive desire for wealth and possessions. If the mind is constantly pursuing selfish pursuit of wealth and possessions, then there's craving, desire, attachment there that the mind is just continuing to pursue and pursue and pursue, expecting to gain some type of benefit from this wealth and possessions. So if you remain that way, where your mind is constantly pursuing wealth for selfish pursuits, then there's this stain of miserliness, which is going to cause the mind to be selfish. And you're going to find that the mind is going to be discontent because there's never going to be enough. You know, you, you want $1 million in your bank account. As soon as you get that, that's going to wear off. You're going to want $2 million. As soon as you get that, that's going to wear off. You want five or 10 million. And this constant pursuit of material wealth and possessions, seeking this external satisfaction that never is sustaining because this external satisfaction is coming from this stain of miserliness where the mind has this excessive desire for wealth and possessions. So he talks about being freely generous open-handed, right? Like sharing, delighting in relinquishment. Relinquishment is like the giving up of things and kind of the abandoning of things, abandoning of this pursuit of material wealth and thinking that that somehow is going to lead to lasting fulfillment. This pursuit of material wealth is not going to lead to lasting fulfillment. This inner fulfillment that is the enlightened mind is not going to come from the acquisition of wealth doesn't mean that you can't be enlightened and wealthy. There's certainly people who are enlightened and wealthy, but there needs to be this practice of being open handed and generous, this delighting in relinquishment and giving up, devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. This is accomplishment and generosity. So, this is just generosity by itself. 
that one topic that we've been talking about throughout this program and now today. But generosity and the gamma or the result that you experience is this reduction and elimination of craving, desire, attachment, which is going to lead to a more peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And what I'm sharing with you on this topic of merit that Gautama Buddha also shared is directing that generosity as well, not only to charitable events and charitable pursuits and charitable activities, but also towards sustaining these teachings. Because without supporting your teacher, how could your teacher continue to share the teachings if there isn't support? So there needs to be this coming together where it's great that we have this expectation or this interest that we would like teachers to freely give their time, effort, energy, and resources, but they can't be one-sided. There has to be this reciprocation of giving from the community as well in order to sustain this model of these teachings continuing throughout humanity. There is this way of practice that Gautama Buddha shared, which is really important for how we progress in this practice. The way of practice is what we call generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. These are the three aspects of the way of practice. And it all starts with generosity. We're going to talk about all three of these, but it all starts with generosity. And I'm going to come back to generosity and explain why it starts with generosity. What moral conduct is, is learning the teachings of the Buddha in order to improve your moral conduct. And if you remember from the Eightfold Path, there's those three steps, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, which are considered to be the moral conduct. By you improving your speech and improving your actions and improving your livelihood and ensuring you're not causing harm with your speech, action, or livelihoods, now, because you're not causing any harm, no harm is going to come to you, but it's going to take you time to build up to that practice more and more. But you learn that moral conduct through the Eightfold Path. That is the moral conduct that's going to improve your life and be a better way of practice to create a better way of life for you. And then you're also practicing meditation, which is part of right concentration, right mindfulness and right effort, that upper part of the Eightfold Path, which we call the mental discipline. And we call meditation or this cultivation of the mind through training the mind in meditation. Well, how would you ever learn this moral conduct that is going to lead to a better way of life? And how are you ever going to learn meditation in order to improve the condition of your mind if we don't first practice generosity? It's generosity that sets all of this other stuff into motion. Without merit and practicing generosity through merit, through giving to helping these teachings continue, then all of these other things that lead to liberation, that lead to enlightenment, it doesn't happen. The only reason why these teachings exist in the world is because of generosity, because of the open-handedness, because of the delighting in giving and sharing with the teachers and the people who are dedicating their life to actually sharing these teachings. So this way of practice of generosity, moral conduct, meditation, it all starts with generosity. 
we would never get to moral conduct and meditation without first practicing generosity. So this is what we call the way of practice. We can't have the moral conduct and meditation and humanity and understanding those teachings without generosity. So this merit is utterly important in order to progress on this path to enlightenment. If you remember back to chapter three, when we talked about the 10 fetters, the 10 fetters are what we call the taints or the pollution of the mind. It's the 10 fetters that need to be eliminated in order to attain enlightenment. And that's how one actually attains enlightenment as an arahant by eliminating these 10 fetters. Well, there's these four stages of enlightenment that these fetters are grouped within. And in that first stage of enlightenment, the three fetters that need to be eliminated is what we call personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, and wrong observances and wrong behaviors. We've talked about personal existence view before, the self or realizing non-self. We've talked about wrong behaviors and wrong observances in terms of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. If we think that those things are what's gonna to lead to enlightenment, then that's a pollution of the mind because rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship doesn't train the mind. So therefore we need to eliminate that thinking that that's going to actually create enlightenment in the mind. Well, there's this third one, which is doubt about the teachings. In order to remove doubt about the teachings to get to this first stage of enlightenment, you need to learn the teachings, you need to understand the truth in the teachings, but then you need to reflect on those and apply them in practice so that you can see that they're truth and gain the wisdom that these teachings are in fact the truth. And you see that by learning them, by independent verification of them, and then you've got wisdom and the mind evolves closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. Through this wisdom, the mind starts changing the way it conducts itself in the world. Well, in order to remove the doubt about the teachings, you need to have a teacher, you need to have guidance, you need to support that teacher, and you need to build confidence in the Buddhist teachings and your teacher. One of the things that is kind of a acknowledgement of your confidence in the teachings is by practicing merit and by offering generous gifts to this sangha of teachers who are sharing the teachings. Because if somebody was to learn all of these teachings and just try to learn them and practice them, but was never willing to actually support the teachings so that other people could benefit from them, then they don't really truly have confidence in the teachings because they're not actually even willing to support the teachings for other people to benefit or even for themselves to benefit from it. There's still kind of this miserliness. There's still this stain of holding on craving material wealth rather than sharing generously. So part of eliminating these first three fetters to get to even the first stage of enlightenment is the practice of generosity to produce merit essentially removing any doubt about the teachings you have through learning and practicing them to see them improving your life and then seeing that you're actually creating a better way of life for yourself. But also through practicing merit, it's an acknowledgement for yourself that you do have confidence in these teachings because 
you're willing to put your time, effort, energy, and resources to work to help these teachings continue within the community. And that's one of the components of removing doubt about the teachings is through practicing merit. One of the things that they do here in Thailand is every morning, the monks will walk throughout the community with a bowl. And as they walk through the community, through the cities, through the villages, through the towns, all the people who are out and about will see the monks walking around with their bowl and they will put food, you know, rice and curry and water and uh, yogurts and even a little bit of money in there to kind of help them buy some kind of incidental supplies that they need to sustain their life, you know, even just for transportation and moving about. So every morning around 6, 6.30, 7 in the morning, you will see, you know, gobs and gobs and gobs of people in orange robes kind of roaming around the streets of all the various cities and villages here in Thailand, just walking with a bowl and people generously making these offerings on a daily basis to offer a little bit of food for the teachers, the people who are sharing the teachings in the community. Then they go back to their temples and they then eat this food. They share it with any people because sometimes people come to the temple in order to get food if they're hungry or they don't have money because the monks always have more than what they really need in terms of food. So they will share at the temple with anybody who comes to the temple. And then any leftovers get shared with the dogs and cats and things like this at the temple. There's always plenty of animals hanging around the temple. So the food gets used and it gets shared. And this money that is being offered gets used to pay for water and electricity. The, there's usually someone taking care of the temple and cleaning it. There's, of course, the monks and the beaconies they are taking care of the temple and cleaning it as well. But there's usually kind of some household person around or a couple that are kind of dedicating their life to take care of the temples. So there's people that are cleaning and buying cleaning supplies and things like this because the household practitioners don't always know what it is that the temple needs in terms of cleaning supplies or a broom or a mop. So they oftentimes will just offer some money so that the temple can just purchase whatever it is that they need in order to sustain this service of offering these teachings to the community. There's nobody that I'm aware of throughout Thailand who are pocketing enormous amounts of money. These monks aren't living in big, beautiful mansions. They're not driving around these rich, expensive cars. They're not wearing these expensive clothing. It's actually just the contrary. These monks are actually in Beaconies or living in just basic four walled rooms that don't even have air conditioning. They just sleep on the floor with just a simple little mattress. Some of them just sleep right on the concrete or the wood. Some of them, like I said, they just live in these little wooden shacks. There's no electricity a lot of times to their private room. There's no air conditioning. Monks don't drive, so there is no car. There is no motorbike that they're going to actually purchase. They don't have a house that they're using the money for. They're just using the food and resources that people offer them to sustain their life. That's all we actually need in order to share these teachings. 
if you're involved with a teacher who has all this enormous wealth, but they're saying that they're offering teachings that attain enlightenment, but yet they're making millions and millions of dollars from doing so, then they're not truly enlightened yet because they haven't yet decided to offer these teachings just out of the generosity of the mind and practicing generosity. So the way to find a really good teacher that's truly doing the community a service is to look for people who have set up their life in a way that is only based on the vital things that are needed in order to sustain their life. And if you find a teacher that is doing that, that has given up material wealth and has given up any kind of worldly pursuits and is just dedicating their time, effort, and energy in order to share the teachings with others without expectation, these are the teachers that are truly progressing and have progressed on this path in a way that sharing the teachings is not about them. It's about helping others. It's not about them acquiring money or acquiring wealth and setting a price for the teachings that they offer, but it's about sharing with others and helping as many people as possible to attain enlightenment during their lifetime. And any kind of legitimate teacher that is set up that way, that's the way that they will set up their life, is they will not be interested in attaining or acquiring wealth because if they've attained enlightenment, their mind is beyond that. They don't see the acquisition of wealth as something that's beneficial, that is going to make their life better. They're not interested in acquiring this enormous amount of wealth because they don't find pleasure in wealth. What they are interested in doing is sharing teachings to help liberate as many people as possible. So if you're looking for a teacher or you're interested in finding someone who can really help you, look for somebody who isn't doing it based on a price, who isn't interested in acquiring wealth, who isn't driving around in some big fancy car or fancy clothing, but somebody who is just genuinely interested in helping. So what you should see is you should see your teacher is actually practicing the teachings. So if you're interested in learning about generosity, moral conduct, and meditation, you should see the person who's sharing the teachings with you is doing so generously without any expectation for anything in return. You should see them practicing this moral conduct of right speech, right action, right livelihood. You should see that they're practicing meditation regularly along with all the other teachings that you learn about Gautama Buddha's teachings because the very best teacher is going to be the person who's practicing the teachings. Right? How could somebody teach right speech if they weren't practicing right speech? How could somebody practice meditation if they didn't meditate? How could somebody teach loving kindness and compassion if they weren't practicing loving kindness and compassion? So the way to identify and determine a good teacher for you is somebody who you see that is indeed practicing the teachings that they teach. There should be a succinctness. There should be a clear indication that the person you're learning with is actually practicing what it is that they're teaching. And that's how you know you found a good teacher and somebody that you can now learn from 
and model your practice after what it is that they're actually doing because what they're doing is what they're teaching. This is where the Buddha said, one who sees me sees the teachings and one who sees the teachings sees me. So he's always practicing what it is that he's teaching. One who sees me sees the teachings. So you should see this generosity, this moral conduct, and this meditation as being practiced by your teacher, but this is also what you need to practice to lead to liberation of the mind. This is another way of kind of organizing and describing the teachings, and it all starts with generosity. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have regarding what I've been sharing so far. I'd like to ask a follow-up around what you're just saying there, David. It sounds like there's a case for applying a bit of discernment in how we give merits. And if there's anything else you'd like to add there, I'd be interested to hear about how we choose where to offer time, resources, money. And also, does that affect our merit based on where we offer our, our resources? Does it affect the results for us? All right, excellent question. So. What the Buddha said about making offerings is he said we should make offerings to virtuous teachers, right? Virtuous practitioners. So here, when I explain what is moral conduct or virtuous behavior, it's holding and manifesting high principles for proper conduct. This is someone who's practicing right speech, right action, right livelihood. If you are planning to make offerings to virtuous teachers, then you're going to seek out teachers who are truly living the life that it is that they're teaching. So if you're around people, for example, who are sharing teachings to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and they're smoking, they're using drugs, they're promiscuous and having sex with some of their students or some of you know different people, then you know this person isn't enlightened. So why would you be interested in learning with someone who isn't enlightened? They're not going to be able to share with you how to attain enlightenment if they aren't enlightened. It's like, I don't know how to drive a car. I've never driven a car, but I'll teach you how to drive a car. How does that work, right? That doesn't work. So in order to learn how to attain enlightenment, you need to be learning with someone who has attained enlightenment. And if you're question without judgment, not putting yourself above or below someone, but just using that discernment that Max is mentioning, the wise decision-making, you should be able to see that a virtuous teacher is gonna have virtuous behavior. They're going to have right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And if you wanna look at the other parts of the Eightfold Path, you know, right view, accepting responsibility for their discontent mind and knowing that they can eliminate it through the Eightfold Path. Right intention is all about practicing harmlessness, non-ill will, not harming others, and then going all the way through the whole Eightfold Path with right speech, right action, right livelihood. So if you're looking to seek out guidance in a teacher and you're seeing they're aggressive, they're harsh, they're talking down to people, they're judging others, they're using substances that cause heedlessness, they're involved in sexual activity, or they're all about material wealth and charging these enormous prices for 
what it is that they're offering, then you know that this person hasn't attained enlightenment and they're not virtuous. So the Buddha is saying, don't just give freely to anybody and everybody, because that would be one side, but also don't hold on to your money so tightly that you only look for selfish pursuits, but find that middle where you seek out teachers who are practicing virtuously and have virtuous behavior. And by you supporting them more and more, that person can be successful because they're sharing the teachings and they're practicing the teachings in a very deep way. Whereas if we're supporting non-virtuous teachers, then we're just encouraging more and more of that to come into the world. So we need to seek out this virtuous behavior in our teachers and ensure that we're supporting people who are doing that because they're the role model, they're the example that we're looking for to be brought into our community. And by supporting them with our generosity, we produce this merit where now we're bringing more and more of these teachings into our life. Now, in the situation where you make an offering, if you make an offering, let's just say there was a monk who was drinking alcohol, smoking, and having sex, even though most people wouldn't consider that person a monk if they were doing that. They might be wearing a robe, they might be sleeping at a temple, they might have gotten ordained, but they're not actually a monk in terms of what people look at as a monk. They're not really practicing deeply. So let's say you make an offering to that person versus a teacher who's really dedicated their time to deeply learning and sharing the teachings, practicing virtuous behavior. Well, in terms of the benefit for your craving, desire, attachment, if you make an offering to either person, and let's just say you didn't even know this person was into non-virtuous behavior, in terms of your benefit for craving, desire, attachment, it's going to be the same because the whole idea is to focus on your practice, that you're living open-handedly and making offerings to help produce better and better results with the teachings of the Buddha, that you're eliminating this craving, desire, attachment. However, in terms of gamma and the result of your decisions, if you know this person is into non-virtuous behavior and you made offerings to that person, it's not producing as good of gamma in terms of the benefit for all of humanity because we're just encouraging this behavior of this non-virtuous person who's out there trying to teach and tell everyone that they're going to attain enlightenment, but yet they themselves are into all this non-virtuous behavior. Whereas if we make offerings to virtuous teachers, it's going to still be beneficial for you, like I said, regardless, but you're creating more benefit in the world because you're actually creating the ability for this virtuous teacher to now share their teachings further and further and further into the world. So it's good to be open-handed, it's good to share, but you should do that with discernment, wise decision-making, and ensure that you're offering these time, effort, energy, and resources to virtuous teachers, teachers who are truly living the teachings and sharing the teachings as well. Got it. Thank you, David. Okay, so we now have a question from Judith. I have a question on making offerings to a monk in the right way. What would we need to know? And what about the difference between making offerings to a monk and a nun? Judith also says, 
I once followed advice from an Ajahn to give offerings to a monk. So I gave a monk my breakfast and he was so offended. I handed it to him and he didn't bow much or kneel. The monk was so angry. Okay. There's a lot of things you need to learn about making an offering to ordained practitioners. So it sounds like if he was mad and angry, he is not practicing very deeply, right? Because based on what you just shared, I can understand that the offering wasn't made the way that it properly should be made. But if I was in that situation and I was the monk that you made the offering to, instead of being angry and hostile with you, I would have politely shared with you and helped you understand how to make an offering because the anger and hostility that they displayed to you, it doesn't help you learn. It doesn't help you improve your practice. It was just his anger and hostility. But this is the reason why is because when you make offerings to people, you don't offer things that you've already acquired for yourself. So if I ordered a plate of food and I start eating this plate of food and then I give it to somebody as an offering, it's not considered to be polite because in Thailand, the way they think is that you should buy food specifically for the ordained practitioners and give it to them. It shouldn't be something you've acquired for yourself, eaten a little bit of and then given to somebody else. And I don't know if that's what you did, but maybe that was the perception that the monk had is that because it was on a plate, maybe he thought that you were kind of had already eaten from it. But regardless, his anger and hostility wasn't helpful. So in order to make an offering, it should be something that you've intentionally purchased or some resource that you've intentionally acquired for the, the purpose of giving. So we will typically go out and purchase things specifically for giving. And we know that that's what we're giving. So if we come home with mango and sticky rice, you know, these three, one for my wife, one for my son, one for me, but these over here, these are for the ordained practitioners and we're not going to touch those. Those are for them. Or if you're making an offering of clothing, of course, you're going to purchase a robe directly for the, the monks or the, the bikinis. And if you're going to make an offering of money, you typically put it into an envelope. Rather than handing the money directly, you usually put it into a white envelope and hand it to them in the envelope rather than having them touch the actual money. It's usually an envelope. These are some of the kind of common offerings. And normally what people do is they kind of get down on their knees and they kind of like bow in order to give the offering to the monks. And then the monks will kind of holding out their bowl, just kind of graciously accept the offering. That's kind of like just a real rudimentary way of making offerings to ordained practitioners. The vast majority of ordained practitioners have been taught not to bow not to why to household practitioners. This is, in my view, a misunderstanding of Gautama Buddha's teachings. What I've discussed with ordained practitioners, I've asked them why they don't bow or show respect to household practitioners. And they say because they're following more precepts, they've acquired and they're carrying more precepts than a household practitioners. The household practitioners are generally practicing five, maybe eight or 10 precepts where the ordained practitioners are usually practicing 227 precepts. They're supposed to be practicing 227, but not all of them are practicing all of those precepts. 
to me, this is a, a vast misunderstanding of Gautama Buddha's teachings because by them not showing respect to the household practitioners, they're essentially saying that we're higher than the household practitioners because we're practicing 227 precepts. We're higher than you. Therefore, we don't have to show respect and gratitude to you, which is one of the reasons why we don't see massive numbers of ordained practitioners who have attained enlightenment because there's still this comparing, this judging, this conceit, this arrogance that some of them have been taught to look down on household practitioners and they put themselves above others. Well, if we go back to Gautama Buddha's lifetime, Gautama Buddha wasn't putting himself above anybody, even as a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. He did just the opposite. He stepped down from being a prince destined to be the king down into homelessness where he roamed around the streets and just ate whatever food people gave to him and slept on the dirt. So he put himself at the bottom of society. And by putting yourself at the bottom of society and practicing humility, then the mind is trained to be humble and peaceful. And by going to the bottom of society, you actually improve the quality of your mind. You get to the top of your mind. But because the ordained practitioners in some communities have gotten really far away from Gautama Buddha's teachings, they're looking down on household practitioners and they put themselves up higher than others. This isn't the case with all ordained practitioners. And that's why the instructions of Gautama Buddha is to find virtuous ordained practitioners and make offerings to them because they're practicing the teachings very well. So there's all these various kind of things that make an offering polite or kind or respectful. And it sounds like this monk that you made the offering to was attached. He had a certain craving, desire, attachment. He had this mental longing with a strong eagerness for things to be done a certain way. He had a certain expectation. And when what you did didn't meet his expectation, he became angry and hostile perhaps. And that's his discontentedness that shows you that he's not very far on the path. What a virtuous monk is going to do in that situation is they're going to recognize that you're not familiar with how to make an offering. They would probably sit down and talk with you and help you and guide you and help you understand what it takes to uh, be guided to make an offering. But if you put yourself above everyone else and you're expecting everyone else to do things a certain way and you're looking down on others, yeah, when somebody makes an offering in a way that isn't really kind of part of the Buddhist culture, yeah, they can get angry and hostile. And that's not what the Buddha taught. So what the ordained practitioners need to do is they need to realize that if it wasn't for the household practitioners, they wouldn't be able to sustain their life. It's the household practitioners that are working, applying effort, blood, sweat, and tears to go out and make certain money and then share that in resources with the ordained practitioners and they should be utterly appreciative and have enormous amounts of gratitude for every single offering that they get and if it was me they should show enormous amounts of respect when people make offerings to me and they provide donations i always make a concerted effort to show my appreciation and gratitude, even if it's $5 or $1 or $10, even just a small little donation, I'm always very, very appreciative because 
every single little amount of money that somebody gives to me to help me to continue to share these teachings, I know what it took for them to go out in the world, you know, taking a shower, waking up, eating breakfast, putting on clothes, going out into the world, facing the world, making their money, doing their job well, bringing it home. And rather than that $25 or $50 going to their household, they've chosen to give it to me. No matter what amount of money, I'm always showing my appreciation and I'm always ensuring that the students who make offerings to me know that I'm very appreciative and showing respect for their offering. And it would be wonderful if more and more ordained practitioners did this because they would see their results for their practice. I'm unattached to whether they actually do that or not. They need to discover it for themselves that this practice that they've evolved to of putting themselves above others and looking down is actually detrimental and dangerous to the condition of their mind and their practice. But if or when they ever discover that is totally up to them. It doesn't affect me and my practice because my practice is I'm showing generosity, appreciation and respect to everybody all the time. So they need to discover that for themselves. And I know that there's some students who study with me that are ordained. So they will hear this. And I teach classes where ordained practitioners will oftentimes show up and learn with me. And these are some of the things that I teach them is to be humble and really have this gratitude and respect for this enormous army of household practitioners that enter into the world and create the environment in which us teachers can actually do what we do and share these teachings with the world. So that's the first part of your question. The second part is, is there any difference between offering to male practitioners versus female ordained practitioners? To me, the answer is absolutely no. They're both the same. Whether you offer to male or you offer to female, it's the same because remember, the goal is that through this offering and through this generous deed that you're having this action around is you're reducing your craving, desire, attachment. Whether you give it to a male ordained practitioner or you give it to a female ordained practitioner, it's the same benefit for you. For me, I haven't really been in contact with very many ordained female practitioners because there just aren't that many ordained female practitioners here in Thailand, they're starting to bring that back. If there was those people around me, I would be really interested to support them because there's tons and tons and tons of support for the male bhikkhu sangha. There's lots of people that are making offerings to them. So for me, I always look to make offerings in places where other people aren't really supporting that much because I know that the females are trying to kind of revitalize their sangha and really grow it within Thailand. If I was going to be around and I only had one offering and there was male practitioners and female practitioners, for me, I would probably offer it to the females at this point in time because I'm interested in supporting and seeing them continuing to grow and flourish in the world where I know there's already tons and tons and tons of people supporting the ordained male practitioners. But that's just the decision that I would make at this particular time in my life. And it may change some other time. But there's no extra benefit in offering to males versus females in terms of your own craving, desire, attachment. 
there's the same benefit to your craving desire attachment because we need to eliminate and reduce that through sharing and letting go i have a question is it possible to pursue and build wealth whilst developing a life practice yes with this caveat there's nothing wrong with acquiring money or wealth there's nothing wrong with pursuing money and sustaining your life through adding more and more resources to what it is that you do. The entire world doesn't need to give up material possessions in order to attain enlightenment because how could we ever sustain the world if everybody was just giving up everything and going into homelessness? So it's possible to be a household practitioner, have a career, and move towards increasing amounts of income while still practicing this path. But what you need to do is you need to ensure that you're not putting your significance as an individual on your salary, that you're not putting the significance of who you are as a person based on the wealth that you've acquired, that you're not pursuing this wealth with this longing and strong eagerness, expecting that this material possessions and this wealth is what's going to create the permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Because what we oftentimes do in the unenlightened state in the way that we're taught is that if you just pursue this wealth and material possessions, that that is happiness. And you should pursue that because that's happiness. Well, yeah, you might be happy if you get a million dollar paycheck. Or you might be happy if you get $5 million in your bank account. But that's temporary. It wears off. If you put your pleasure and your happiness vested in the wealth and material possessions, then at some point your mind's going to be discontent because you're searching for this external pleasure based on wealth and material possessions. So it's a matter of finding that middle where you don't just sit back and do nothing and be kind of like a strain on society, not offering humanity any kind of benefit whatsoever, but you're also not pursuing wealth at all costs with this longing and strong eagerness, but you find this middle where you're able to sustain your life and you're able to pursue increased amounts of income, but you're doing that with a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind where you're not putting your happiness on this money and this material wealth. So you need to find this middle where you can prioritize your life, where the first priority in your life should be to learn and practice these teachings, improving your mental health, right? The Buddhist teachings are all about developing and improving and maintaining your mental health. That should be like your first priority in this life is learning and practicing these teachings to develop the mind. Then you should be focused on your physical health and ensuring that the body is physically healthy. Then you should be focused on spending time with your family, with your people around you, your friends, and developing good, wholesome relationships with the people that you reside with, the people that you live with, and your coworkers and people that are surrounding you. And then your fourth priority should actually be work, right? Oftentimes in society, we get this completely backwards 
we put our work first and we pour everything we've got into work. And we think if we just work, 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 that everything's going to work itself out in the end. But in reality, what ends up happening is you put 95% of your effort and time into working and people burn out. You start feeling empty inside. You start feeling lonely. You start feeling bored. You start feeling like life is meaningless because all you're doing is pursuing work, 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 work. And you're working so many hours that you're neglecting these personal relationships that you need to cultivate in the world. And you're also neglecting your own physical and mental health. So in order to develop a stable life where you can now reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, you need to reprioritize this where your number one goal is your mental health through learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings to cultivate and train the mind. That's the first priority. Everything else is second. The second thing is your physical health, ensuring that you eat good food, that you drink good, wholesome drinks, that you're maybe doing a little bit of exercise and maintaining the physical health of the body. With those two things, if you've got good mental health and you've got good physical health, now you're gonna be better in the relationships that you're in. But if you're having aches and pains in the physical body, if your mind is highly discontent, how could you ever have good relationships with your family and friends around you. So that's why the mental and physical health is the first two priorities. Then you focus on ensuring that you have good, wholesome relationship with your friends and family. Then to sustain all of that, that's your life, right? That's your life, is your mental health, physical health, and your uh, relationships with the people around you. That is your life. This work, which is the fourth priority, that's the thing that helps sustain all of this. So here in Thailand, you know, 40, 60% of our life is all about work, where a good, you know, 80%, six, you know, 60% of our life is about spending time with friends and family. So people here, it's not uncommon to see people close their restaurant at 11 or 12 o'clock if they sold out all their food. Rather than go out and buy a whole bunch more food and make a whole bunch more money, no, they've got enough money. They just go home and spend time with their family. So we've got to reprioritize this in order to sustain a healthy life, is ensure that you're focused on your mental health, your physical health, your relationships with friends and family, and then get to work and ensure that you've got the income that you need to sustain your life, but also to be generous in giving to other people. So this material wealth that we oftentimes are programmed or conditioned to pursue, and we think that that's somehow going to lead to lasting fulfillment, it's a myth. It's not true reality. It's part of that third poison, the ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. The unenlightened mind just thinks if it pursues and pursues and pursues and tries to get all this wealth, that somehow it's going to be eternally happy. But happiness is not permanent. It's part of discontentedness. So you've got to recognize that there's no inner fulfillment from this constant pursuit, craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing and strong eagerness for wealth and material possessions. You should 
pursue income and pursue acquiring possessions that you need in this life, but not what you want. There's a very big difference in this. The unenlightened mind is oftentimes going to pursue its wants, wants, wants. And that list of wants never ends because it just keeps adding more and more and more and more to what the mind wants. And this is why craving desire attachment is very expensive. It's very expensive to maintain craving desire attachment because you keep adding all these wants to your list. Well, if you get rid of your wants and you just focus on your needs, what do I really need to sustain this life? Then the mind can be more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because the mind's not actively pursuing all these wants. All this craving, desire, attachment, these wants, it's requiring enormous amounts of effort in the mind in order to actively pursue this and this pursuing of wealth and material possessions. So if you get rid of the wants and just look at what do you really need, you're going to find that your income is actually quite substantial, that you can actually sustain yourself on a very small amount of money and you're going to be more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you no longer have this strong yearning and desire for so much wealth that this job that you're holding and you're pursuing and you're trying to do a good job at, if for some reason that crashes, then you recognize that is impermanent and you just redirect towards finding a new job and finding a new career or finding some new way to sustain your life. The Buddha even talked about on this path to enlightenment, that we need to ensure that our expenses do not exceed our income, right? Our income should be higher than our expenses. And if our income is going to be impermanent, which we know it is, then that means we need to throttle our expenses as well. Whereas if you're the other side around, if your expenses are higher than your income and you're racking up a whole lot of credit card debt, for example, which is common in a lot of societies taking on debt, this is going to put stress on you. If you have a lot of credit card debt or even any other kind of debt, you're going to experience stress as a result of that. Whereas if you are debt free and you're actually saving a little bit of money on the side for a rainy day, your mind is going to be much more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy than having to constantly chase after servicing this debt. So even Gautama Buddha talked about ensuring that we structure our life in a way that our expenses are below what our income is. And that's going to create an environment and it's going to create conditions where the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Because as long as you owe people a bunch of money, it's going to cause discontentedness in the mind. It's going to create stress in the mind. So to get away from that, you've got to balance your life out, not pursue this wealth and material possessions for external satisfaction, but look internally for that inner peace, that inner fulfillment. I think you touched on something, many really helpful things there, David. It was something that really resonated with my experience is how 
I used to think that to improve my financial situation, I really had to go out there and get it and, you know, really get to the grindstone and push hard. And, you know, letting go of attachments is actually one of the best ways to improve one's financial situation, I found. So that's one of the other perks of practice that we don't often talk about, but certainly true for me at least. Yeah, it's so expensive to maintain craving. I remember every time a new iPhone came out, I had to have the newest one or... You know, I remember when I was a child, you know, the newest pair of shoes came out. I had to buy the newest pair of shoes or the newest pair of pants. And, you know, all of those things are very, very expensive. If there's ego and there's arrogance there and there's this desire, this craving to always have the best, the newest, you know, look impressive for other people, that is very expensive. And if it's expensive, that means it's going to require a lot of work out of you. And that means you can't relax if you're constantly working and pursuing this craving. That's what we mean when we say liberation, liberation of the mind. You have freedom. The mind is free. It's liberated from this craving, desire, attachment of constantly pursuing. Because if the mind has craving, desire, attachment for all the newest, the latest, the greatest things, it's going to constantly be pursuing, 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 pursuing. The mind isn't free. The mind doesn't have freedom. So that's what we mean when we say liberation of the mind to attain enlightenment, liberation from this constant craving and wanting all the time. As a follow up then, David, what are some things we might consider when making savings or investments for our future and future products, uh, future projects whilst maintaining our life practice? Yeah, I think it's always wise to have money set aside, you know, rainy day, you know, and and ensuring that you're doing that on a regular basis. So what I used to do is I used to have a certain amount of income and I knew that, you know, 10 or 20 percent of it was going to savings right off the bat. Like I had a little spreadsheet. I knew what my money coming in was and I just took 10 or 20 percent off and I was just like, all right, that's going to savings. And I would just save that. And then this other 80% or other 90%, you know, I had a certain amount that I used for living. I had a certain amount that I would share for charitable giving and all the different things that needed to take care of in life. So oftentimes, if there's a lot of craving, you know, we go into debt because we want so many things. We start charging up the credit cards and they can get very expensive and that interest rate can be a downward spiral for us. So you need to set up your life in a way that you set aside some money for savings and you take care of your basic needs and you share some money and be generous with others as well. One of the things that I used to do too is when I was in IT or like when I had my own business and I was getting increased amounts of income, I would set up my life to live kind of in a basic way like I just talked about, savings, needs, and then generosity. And when I would get a raise, for example, or my business started doing better, I didn't change my lifestyle. I always maintained the same expenses. And I would use that extra income to add to extra savings or you know, extra generosity. I didn't always increase the way that I live my life. If I did really, really good in a particular year and got a substantial raise, I might have done something, bought myself a new jacket or a new pair of shoes or something like this, just as a little reward for all the hard work and effort that I put in. But I never really saw the increased amount of income as a way for me to 
drastically improve what I was doing in my life because I already felt like I had a pretty decent life. I had food, I had shelter, I had water, I had clothing, medical supplies. I didn't need a Rolex watch, for example. I didn't need, you know, all these gobs and gobs of gold chains and gold rings and all these different things. I just needed what I needed to sustain life. And I found pleasure in helping other people and knowing that I had a little bit of savings, knowing that I was taking care of my life and knowing that I was helping other people, it helped me to feel comfortable with this effort and time that I'm putting in to sustain life through making an income. I'm sharing it in many different ways. So you can save money, but just don't set it up where your mind craves a certain balance in your bank account where you know you've got to have five thousand dollars in that account or you just don't feel worthy as a person you know you've got to detach from that yearning that longing that strong eagerness to have a set amount of money in your account because even you get that five thousand dollars well, let's just say your car needs a repair and now you need to drop it down to 4,000. Well, now your mind's going to crave, 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 crave just to get it back to that 5,000. And then when you get to that 5,000, it's going to want seven or it's going to want eight. So you need to have some savings to sustain yourself, but you need to also ensure that you've got what you need in this life and you don't set your significance or your happiness on the amount of money that's in your bank account. What I would always try to do is I would always try to have enough money in my bank account, and this was living in America, that I had enough for about two or three months. If I didn't make any additional money whatsoever, I could sustain myself for two or three months. Because at that point in time when I was working, I knew that for sure within a two or three month period, I'd be able to find another job. I could typically find a job in America within two to four weeks. And I knew that, that I could, based on the skills and degrees that I had, I could find another job in about two to four weeks. So I would set up my savings that I would have enough money for two to three months. So that way, if I got fired, which I've never gotten fired from a job, uh, or at least my professional career, when I was a kid, I got fired. Um, in my professional career, I never got fired. Or if I got laid off, I actually got laid off on two different jobs at one time. Uh, but I was never discontent during the layoff because I knew it was coming. I knew that I was probably going to get laid off and I had plenty of savings to take care of myself. So when I actually got laid off, I was like, all right, well, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate you know everything that this company has offered me and now I'm going to go do my thing. And I never experienced discontentedness in terms of anger, hostility at that particular time because I knew I was had myself covered with this two to three months kind of fallback. So that would be a good way is don't use the numbers that I'm saying because what your life is and my life was was different. You have to look at your training, your skills and ability. Look at how long it has taken you to get a job in the past. And whatever amount of time that it took you to get a job in the past, double or triple that. And then put that money aside over time, save up that amount of money. So for me, it took me two to four weeks to get a job. So that's why I had two to three months worth of savings to the side to always support me. So if it takes you three months to get a job, then you're going to need six months or nine months worth of money sitting to the side to sustain your life. 
also you want to look at where you're living. There were times when I was making a million dollars a year in my companies, but I was living in a very substandard apartment. Every once in a while, my employees would come by my apartment and they were shocked the way that I lived because they thought that their boss lived in this big, beautiful mansion somewhere. But I didn't need that. At that particular time, my wife, Sarah, was in Thailand. I was all by myself. So I just rented this like beat up old room in uh, somebody's house. And I just lived very meagerly on very minimal amount of money. And even though I was making lots and lots of money, in fact, the landlord that I rented from, they didn't even know that I was a business owner and that I made money. Because when I left that place, the landlord was trying to do all these kind of scrupulous things because they kind of assumed that I didn't have an education. They kind of assumed that I was poor. They kind of assumed that I didn't have my wits about me. And they were trying to hold my security deposit and do all these backhanded things. And what they realized was like, okay, this guy actually knows more than we thought. But I never put it out there that I was this business owner that was making lots of money. I lived very basic. I drove a, a Toyota car. You know, I didn't drive a BMW, which I did at one time. But what I realized is by driving around an expensive car, people looked at me differently and I didn't like that. So I sold the BMW and I bought a Toyota because I wasn't interested in people looking at me differently. So because of the lifestyle that I was living, even though I was making all of this income, the lifestyle that I created was a very meager existence, but that created a lot of peacefulness for me so that when my business went down during an economic downturn, I didn't have to make any changes to my lifestyle because I was already living a very basic life. So if you can bring your craving, desire, attachment down to live just a very basic life, you can see that you, there's actually quite a bit of contentedness in living a very basic life. Thank you, David. I have another question. What role can gratitude and appreciation play in our practice? Well, gratitude and appreciation isn't something that the Buddha points out as part of the path to enlightenment. So when we talked about the Eightfold Path, for example, there's all this you know, wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline that's part of this Eightfold Path. And that is the core path. But there's other things that we know are part of this path that the Buddha didn't necessarily point out and put on this path, but it's a vital component of attaining enlightenment. If somebody was to practice the entire Eightfold Path, but they didn't have appreciation and gratitude for people around them and for the things that happen, they wouldn't be enlightened, right? You can practice all these other wholesome teachings on the Eightfold Path and still lack appreciation and gratitude and still not be enlightened. So appreciation and gratitude, being appreciative and having this gratitude, since we're talking about merit, towards your teacher for sharing these teachings is utterly important. And it's a required component of attaining enlightenment. And any teacher who is teaching you should also have gratitude and appreciation for their students. Because without students, a teacher isn't a teacher, right? A person can't just stand up and say, I'm going to be a teacher. The only reason why I'm a teacher is because they're students who are interested in learning with me. So it's you guys as students that have chosen to learn with me 
which means that I'm a teacher. But me by myself, I can decide to teach. I can decide that's what I would like to do. But if there's not people interested in learning what I have to share, then I'm not a teacher. I'm just a person with a bunch of ideas, right? So a teacher should have appreciation and gratitude for their students. And the students should also have gratitude and appreciation for the teacher. And you should see that in an exchange of time, effort, energy, and resources to share with each other. But beyond that relationship, there should also be appreciation and gratitude for your life partners, for your children, for your coworkers, for your friends, for your neighbors. You need to cultivate this appreciation and gratitude for all people. Because without it, then you're thankless, right? You don't have any thankfulness in you. So when somebody does something for you, if you just have expectation that everybody should be doing something for you, when something is done for you, you don't have appreciation and gratitude because you just expect it. Whereas if there is no expectation, anything that happens, anything that anybody does for you, there should be this appreciation and gratitude for that. And by sharing appreciation and gratitude with others, because of the natural law of gamma, that's what's going to come back to you. So if you feel that people don't appreciate you, if you feel that others don't share gratitude with you, then that means you probably aren't practicing appreciation and gratitude for others. The way to fix that is for you to share appreciation and gratitude with everybody and anybody without any expectation of anything in return. And by you doing that, what you're going to see is people are going to be very appreciative and have gratitude for you and what you do. So don't just sit back and complain or be sad because you feel like people don't appreciate and have gratitude for you and just sit back and decide you're not going to share appreciation and gratitude because the more that you don't have appreciation and gratitude for others, the least people are going to have for you. So it's this downward spiral again. The way to break up this log jam is for you to improve your practice, for you to practice appreciation and gratitude. By you doing that more and more and more, then because of the natural law of gamma, that's what will come back to you. But you can't have an expectation that it will come back to you, but just do it because you know it's a good wholesome thing to do. If people are interested in supporting you in these teachings, David, and uh, attaining merit, what are some of the ways they can do that? Well, there's time, effort, energy, and resources, right? So for me, I'm spending a minimum of about 80 hours a week in all the things that I do, you know, teaching classes, editing podcasts, answering questions on Facebook, posting online, doing private sessions with students to provide private guidance, looking for more and more ways to produce content and resources to help people learn and practice these teachings. So I know I'm all in, in terms of the time, effort, energy, and resources that I share with the world. If somebody would like to help me, I mean, just as simple as sharing some of the posts that I make, inviting people to come to these classes, inviting people to come into the Facebook group, sharing the podcast with people, sharing videos with people, that all really, really helps to share the teachings in the world is that you're using your time, effort, and energy to share. If I ever have any little special projects 
you could reach out to me. You can say, David, do you have any projects that I can help you with? You know, is there anything that you're working on that I could help you to do? That's wonderful. Um, like you, Max, you're offered to be a moderator for this. If there's anyone else that would like to try to be a moderator at some point and give Max a little bit of a break every once in a while, that would be good. If you are able to share financial resources, that helps me to do things like purchase the Zoom membership, purchase the ability to distribute these classes out through the internet, purchase all the different resources and things that I need in order to host these classes and even sustain my life to purchase a little bit of simple clothes and some food and things like this because by you supporting me financially, then I'm able to devote more and more and more of my time. And it's taken me up to this point, two years to get to the point where now I'm at a point where I pretty much don't need to do any kind of side work where for a long time I used to still work on the side and do this as well, where now I'm pretty much been doing this for the last couple of months, 100%, but things are still quite tight, especially when it's time to purchase the Zoom membership or purchase the distribution of the live streaming software and things like this. So if you're benefiting from these teachings and you're using these resources, it would be great if you could go to patreon.com forward slash support Buddha and set up like a monthly donation of $5, $15, $25 or more, whatever you feel is appropriate. If you're listening to the podcast or any of the other resources that I share, if you were able to make some donations, that would be really helpful. I have it set up on Patreon as well as PayPal. So if you go to paypal.me forward slash support Buddha 999, these are ways that you can share because I can't walk to the UK and America and Spain and South America with a bowl and ask you guys to put some food into it every day. It's not possible for me. So because of technology, you can just have trust and confidence that any donation that you're making to me is going to go to good, wholesome things. So if you could make a donation through one of these mechanisms, it would provide me the ability to use that money for the resources that I need in order to sustain my life, to purchase resources that can further these teachings and share them in the world. But if you can't do any of those things and you just absolutely don't even have money for yourself, then I wouldn't want you to make a donation to me. What I'd rather see you do is do things like share, post, or invite people to come learn. Or the other thing that the Buddha talked about as the very highest form of gamma that one could produce is to actually meditate. Breathing mindfulness meditation is the highest form of gamma that you could actually produce. So by you doing breathing mindfulness meditation regularly and have a dedicated practice to that, that's the highest form of gamma that you could produce. And then loving kindness meditation is the second form. So that's for your own practice. But in order to sustain what I do, I do need donations of time, effort, energy, and resources. And if you find the ability to do that, I would be much appreciative and have lots of gratitude for you to be able to do that. Thank you, David. And it's interesting also to hear about breathing mindfulness meditation being the highest form of wholesome karma and the most meritorious 
act one can do as well. Does that mean that practicing breathing mindfulness meditation is one of the best ways to maintain these teachings in the world? Yes, learning and practicing the teachings because a teacher like me, I can learn and practice these teachings and practice them well, but if they're not being shared with other people, then they're not going to be sustained in the world. So it's only through having a community of students, practitioners, and teachers that these teachings continue to flourish. So that's why part of my goal here is not only to share with students who are practicing the teachings, but also to build out more and more of a network of teachers where you guys, as you're practicing for multiple years, you're first learning to be a very deep practitioner, but also that I will help you to teach and share these teachings in the world. Because as these teachings spread more and more and more, David Roylands can't teach the entire world all of these teachings. There's going to need to be other teachers besides just me. So since I've devoted my time, effort, energy, and resources to creating these resources, where there's a book, there's a YouTube channel, there's an audio book, there's a Facebook group, all of these things, the practitioners who learn these teachings and then decide to be teachers, they can utilize all these same resources that I've already created to share the teachings in the world. And if we do this with only the interest in sharing and helping people, that's the number one priority is sharing these teachings and helping people in the world. But in doing so, we know that there's some amount of financial support that we're going to need in order to accomplish that goal. But that's not the priority. The priority is not to make money in anything that we're doing. The priority is to share these teachings as far and wide as possible so that the largest number of people can attain liberation and enlightenment. We stay focused on that goal of helping people, always focused on helping people as a priority, but then know that there needs to be this financial support. By doing that, focused on just helping the people, then we can keep these teachings open where there is no price. There is no price to learn these teachings. And that means that everybody and anybody can learn these teachings. There's students that learn with me that are in places like Africa that the people don't work. They don't have any money. They are barely able to support themselves to have food. And luckily, they have an internet connection on their phone, but they're able to learn through the podcast and reading the book and watching these videos. So by those of us that are able to support these efforts and share resources of financial donations, not only is it helping you to eliminate craving, not only is it helping me to support and maintain these classes, but it's also helping people who don't have the ability to even offer even one little penny of donation that they're able to learn and practice these teachings. So what we're able to do by practicing this merit and generosity is completely eliminate any barrier to attaining enlightenment because there shouldn't be any barrier to attaining enlightenment. If you're rich, if you're poor, if you're middle class, wherever you are in society, I would like these teachings to be able to be accessible and penetrate into those communities. Financial resources shouldn't be an obstacle to somebody interested to attain enlightenment. And by me setting up in this way, 
making my expenses and the way that I live my life very minimal and accepting donations without setting a price for anything that I do, I can then openly and freely share these teachings with everybody and anybody without any expectation of anything in return. So the amount of time that I spend helping people to learn and practice these teachings who are giving me donations is the same amount of time and effort and energy that I spend with people who aren't able to give donations. I don't use that as a criteria of who I choose to help. I choose to help everybody and anybody, keeping the teachings open and free to everybody. There is no paywall between me and people that are interested to learn to liberate the mind and attain enlightenment. And if we continue to practice generosity on both sides, then we can maintain this where not only me, but anybody who chooses to be a teacher in the future, we can continue to maintain this practice of generosity going forward in the world, which is going to produce the best results in terms of enlightenment, right? If we start setting up prices for things, then there's going to be a hindrance to people attaining enlightenment. With that said, there's only one thing that I do that I actually set a price for, and that's when I have retreats here in Chiang Mai because there's actually hard expenses. There's transportation, there's food, there's lodging, there's events and activities. So there's like a 10-day retreat and there's a certain price for that. But in terms of me, I don't have any kind of massive amount of income that I'm getting from that price for the retreat. That money is going towards these hard expenses. And for me, it's all about just offering these teachings and providing this opportunity for people to travel here and spend 10 days or 20 days or 30 days. But in reality, what I would really like to get to is get to a point where I don't even have to have those prices either. And I only do those retreats occasionally, but I would like to get to the point where there is a center that the center is being self-funded by donations and I can just show up and teach. And that's what I do at Wat Tung Yu here in the city is I used to go there before COVID and I would just teach and any donations that came in, they just went to the temple or some people would make donations to me. But sharing these teachings aren't about getting donations. It's about sharing the teachings with the people and helping them to liberate their mind. But it requires this generosity on all sides to be practiced in order to get to that point. We have a question from YouTube from a user called Nirvana. Can we seek Buddhism as lay people and get Nirvana? Yes, there's nothing about being a lay person or a household practitioner that would inhibit you or preclude you from enlightenment. There's the 10 fetters that need to be eliminated from the mind in order to attain enlightenment. These 10 fetters are all based on the condition of the mind. They're not based on your lifestyle. So if you chose to be an ordained male or female practitioner versus a household practitioner, that lifestyle that you're choosing to live isn't going to be a hindrance or a roadblock to you attaining enlightenment. There's some people in the world that will tell you that you have to ordain in order to attain enlightenment. This is not true at all. During the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, there were plenty of ordained practitioners that attained enlightenment, but there were also household practitioners that attained enlightenment too. Today, 
There's ordained practitioners that have attained enlightenment, and there's household practitioners that have attained enlightenment as well. The 10 fetters are all about the condition of the mind and eliminating those through training of the mind has nothing to do with your lifestyle, whether you choose to ordain or not. So a household practitioner can absolutely attain enlightenment. One of the things that you're gonna need though is you're gonna need a teacher. You need somebody that can guide you. So you need resources like a book that I offer, like podcasts, videos, classes like this, personal guidance. And when you have a teacher that can guide you in these teachings and practices, then you can work to eliminate these 10 fetters from the mind and attain enlightenment as a household practitioner. In the ordained discipline, the conditions are more conducive for you to attain enlightenment. It's like being in the womb of a mother. That womb of the ordained discipline will produce conditions which are more conducive for you to progress towards enlightenment because you're not working. You don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend. You don't have a car. You don't have a house. You don't have children. You don't have all of these possessions and things that the mind can hold on to with craving, desire, attachment. So in that ordained discipline, either as a male or female, the conditions are more conducive for enlightenment, but it's not guaranteed. In this household life, you can still attain enlightenment, but there's more things for you to contend with. There's more things for you to learn. There's more things for you to eliminate attachments from. Gautama Buddha called the household life, he called it dusty. It's kind of dusty because there's all this dust that can collect. In the ordained path, there's lots that you have to learn in order to become an ordained practitioner and attain enlightenment in the ordained path. But being a household practitioner, there's an enormous amount that you have to learn in terms of how to learn to love unconditionally, learn how to not be attached to a car, for example. Maybe you have transportation, but don't be attached to it. Maybe you have a dwelling and shelter, but you don't get attached to it. You have a life partner, but you don't get attached to them. You practice unconditional love. You have children, but you don't get attached to them. You practice unconditional love. There's all these things that you need to learn that are unique in the household life, but you can indeed attain enlightenment as a household practitioner. Having attained enlightenment as a household practitioner, you will then have the freedom to do so many things in the household life that you wouldn't otherwise have the ability to do in the ordained life. So it's kind of like a trade-off. In the ordained life, conditions to attain enlightenment are more conducive, but life is also more restrictive. And then in the household life, it's more challenging, but once you attain it, it's more freedom in terms of what you can do in your life. And what some people choose to do is they navigate this lifestyles sporadically. They might ordain for five years, practice really deeply, and then come out and be a household practitioner. Or they might start it off ordained as a child. You know, when they become 25, 30, 35 years old, they might decide to unordain. Maybe they've attained enlightenment and then they decide to unordain. Or maybe somebody attains enlightenment in the household life. And then after they attain enlightenment, they decide to ordain. There's all this back and forth. So ordaining isn't a lifelong pursuit necessarily. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. You can use this womb 
of the bhikkhu and bhikkhuni sangha as a way to develop your practice for a particular period of time, whether it's one year, three years, five years, or the rest of your life. And you can move in and out of these lifestyles to learn and practice and develop your practice at deeper and deeper levels all the time. But you can absolutely attain enlightenment as a household practitioner. I would encourage you, if you're going to choose to do that and choose to attain enlightenment as a household practitioner in that lifestyle, is that you find a teacher who has attained enlightenment who is a household practitioner. Because oftentimes, attaining enlightenment in an ordained path, there's certain things that they can teach you and there's lots that they can teach you, but there might be certain things that they're missing in terms of the wisdom that they have about how to practice these teachings in the household life, where a teacher who's in the household life, who has attained enlightenment, they will understand how to attain enlightenment from the household life in that lifestyle very, very well, very, very detailed and very, very intricately. So their wisdom of how to attain enlightenment in the household life is going to be unique compared to someone who understands how to attain enlightenment through the ordained path. Okay, thank you, David. You recently made a post in Daily Wisdom about politeness and respect. I'd like to ask, why is it so important to practice politeness, respect and friendliness as part of our life practice to liberate the mind? Yeah, this is kind of similar to the question you asked about appreciation and gratitude. We don't see necessarily politeness, respect and friendliness being called out on this Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is like really the core teachings of what it really takes to get to enlightenment, understanding this natural law of gamma. But there's these other things that kind of hang off this path that we know are part of the enlightened mind. If you practice the Eightfold Path in its detail, all of its intricacies, but you weren't polite, you weren't friendly, you weren't respectful to others, you're not going to attain enlightenment. This goes back to Judith's question about the ordained individual who was angry and hostile towards her. That wasn't polite. That wasn't friendly. That wasn't respectful of her. And that's how we know that that person wasn't enlightened. No big deal. We're not judging. We're not looking down on this person. It's just where they were in their practice on that particular day. So we need to be polite and not just polite to teachers. Yes, you should be polite to your teacher, your teachers sharing with you openly and freely. Yes, we should be polite to bhikkhus and bikinis and other people like that. But being polite to your children, being polite to your life partner, being polite to your friends and your coworkers. Remember the natural law of gamma. Whatever you put out is going to come back to you. Cause and effect, action and result, the result of your decision. By you being polite, friendly, and respectful, that's what's going to come back to you. So if you are a parent and your children are disrespectful to you, they're not polite and they're not friendly with you, that's because that's what they learned from you. That's probably how you were treating them. And they've learned that with you. They've learned to be impolite. They've learned to be disrespectful and they've learned to be unfriendly. And they might have also learned some of that from their friends and their classmates at school and things like that. But at home, that's where you as a parent, you have to be one who sees me, sees the teachings. 
You need to take this as like your tagline almost. If you're being disrespectful, impolite, and unfriendly to your children, that's what's going to come back to you. And if you're being that way to your partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, what have you, your parents, your siblings, that's what's going to come back to you. So the way to move the mind towards this enlightened mind where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy is it all starts with you. See, where we oftentimes get confused in the unenlightened state is we want everyone else to be polite, kind, and respectful to us first before we will be polite and respectful to everyone else. But by doing that, it's a big log jam because everybody's waiting for each other to be polite, kind, and respectful, and nobody's budging. But what you've got to do is you've got to be that person who's learning and practicing these teachings say, no, this is all about my practice. This is all about me improving the condition of my mind. And by me doing that, I'm unattached to what other people say and do, but I'm going to be polite and I'm going to be respectful and I'm going to be friendly because that's good for my practice. And you do that. And if other people choose to be disrespectful, then that's their practice. But don't feel like someone has to earn your respect because if someone is earning your respect and you've made that decision in your mind that means you're judging them you're going to sit back and judge them and let me see if they actually have earned my respect right this is arrogance this is ego this is judgment it's not going to lead to anything wholesome in your life what you've got to do is you've got to move your practice forward and evolve to the point where you can be polite, respectful, and friendly to all beings. Even when someone's being hostile and angry and aggressive with you, just smile. I love you. Why be angry and hostile back, right? There's no reason for that. It's only going to be detrimental to your practice. So we've got to take the initiative to practice politeness, respectfulness, and friendliness without judgment, just open-handed. This generosity that the Buddha talked about in terms of time, effort, energy, and resources being open-handed, we need to be open-handed with our politeness and our respect and our friendliness, our appreciation, our gratitude. Because when you live open-handedly with those qualities and you're practicing that regularly on a daily basis with everyone around you, then that's what's going to come back to you. You're not practicing these things because you're expecting it to come back to you. Because if you expect it to come back to you and you're waiting for it to come back to you, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Your intention has to be that you're improving your practice in the condition of your mind to practice this politeness, respectfulness, friendliness, appreciation, and gratitude. And you just do that regardless of what everyone else is doing. You're not conditioning your practice based on somebody else. You're not attaching your practice to somebody else. I'm only going to do these things if somebody else does this, right? That's condition. You're conditioning your conduct. <clears throat> you're conditioning your practice based on what others are doing. This is going to keep everything in a log jam. So you've got to uncondition your mind. That's what enlightenment is, is unconditioning the mind. So you just freely, open-handedly practice appreciation, gratitude, politeness, respect, and friendliness. 
And one of the ways that you can start with that is, yeah, with your teacher, with your Buddhist teacher, uh, because your Buddhist teacher should be practicing that as well. But then don't just allow it to stay there in that relationship. Move it into all your other relationships, too. And that's where you're going to see your personal and professional relationships blossom. And you're going to see more and more people treating you the same way that you treat them. And this is where the mind moves to be more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because more and more people are just treating you wonderful. But even when there's that occasional person who's disrespectful to you, if you've trained your mind well enough, it won't affect you. You'll just continue to be appreciative with gratitude, politeness, respect, and friendliness, unaffected and unshakable by this disrespect and hostility that you're experiencing. Okay, we have one more question from Nguyen on Facebook. She's looking for some parenting advice. Hi, David. Did the Buddha teach about teenager love? How can we advise our teenagers to focus on study rather than love? Yeah, so this is an interesting topic. So the way that the Buddha taught is that we shouldn't have relationships with significant others in terms of like sexual relationships and these romantic loves until we've chosen to leave our parents' house. And this is the reason why, because at 12 years old, 14 years old, 16 years old, the mind is still developing and there's so much wisdom that is missing from a teenager's mind that it isn't yet prepared and ready for this really deep, intense relationship. And there's so many things that need to be learned that stepping out into one of those really intense, deep relationships is problematic. But the challenge for us in today's society is that we're all indoctrinated with this content of TV images, of magazines, of internet, and all of this media that's going into the mind showing sexuality and showing romanticized love and all of these things. And what happens is if someone hasn't learned these teachings, which I'm assuming your teenagers haven't, then they're misunderstanding love. They're actually thinking that attachment, this craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, they think that is love. They just think if they have this boyfriend or girlfriend that everything's going to be so wonderful in their life. I just need this person. That's not love. That's actually craving, desire, attachment, and it's going to lead to discontentedness. The best thing you can do is not try to inhibit your teenager from pursuing the relationship because the more that you try to put the brakes on the relationship, the more they're going to dig their feet in and they're going to resist and they're going to pursue it more and more. The more that mom and dad say no, they're going to say yes and they're going to go down that path, right? The best thing you can do is start sharing these teachings with them, helping them understand impermanence, discontentedness, non-self, helping them understand the Four Noble Truths, helping them understand the Eightfold Path, because they need the wisdom to make better and better decisions. Right now, they're making the decision to go out and attempt to have this deep, intense, romantic relationship because their mind doesn't know any better. Their mind doesn't have the wisdom to realize that it's actually craving desire attachment. It's not love at all. It's actually craving desire attachment. 
So if you just try to tell them that this relationship's wrong and they shouldn't do it, they don't understand why. They don't have the wisdom to understand why. So rather than try to put the brakes on that necessarily, the better thing to do is kind of come around and start at the beginning with the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, which are all things that you can get in this book. And it's free. You can download it for free and share this with your teenagers. And you can even have like family time together on Saturday or Sunday or someday during the week where the family comes together and they learn these teachings and they discuss the teachings. Nowadays, you can pull up YouTube on a television or a computer and you can watch some of these talks that I've done with your family, whether it's 15 minutes or an hour or two hours. And you guys can all sit around as a family, listen to these teachings and these talks, and then afterwards have a family discussion about it and see about how does your children feel about what was being shared and let them share their opinions. There's one thing that teenagers love the most is when mom and dad listen to their opinions and their thoughts, because oftentimes parents shut down children and we kind of think that they should just listen to us all the time. And that teaches children to not have freedom of thought. And what you're trying to do as a parent is you're trying to guide your children to make good, wise decisions because you're not going to be there with your children all the time. You can't make all the decisions for your children because you're impermanent. You can't be there with them all the time. So as parents, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to guide our children and making really good decisions. And the way to make really good decisions is to help them have wisdom. It's one thing for the parent to say, I want my child to make better decisions. But as parents, we have to guide them in gaining the wisdom to make those better decisions. So it's wonderful that us parents have an interest in our children to make better decisions, but we have to provide them the wisdom in which to make those decisions. And the Buddha's teachings are what's going to produce the wisdom to make those better and better decisions. So sitting around as a family, watching these videos, reading the book, having family discussions, showing your children that you're interested in hearing their thoughts and opinions, and maybe you disagree with their opinions and you talk politely, respectfully, friendly, and you teach your children through that. Not only are they learning the teachings, but they're learning how to disagree with mom and dad politely, respectfully, friendly, because you're doing it. If you can politely, respectfully, and friendly disagree with your children about certain things they're sharing, then they're gonna learn how to do that with you. So that's part of the decisions that you can make in order for them to gain this wisdom is model this behavior and having open discussions. Because one of the big problems in our society today is people don't know how to disagree with each other politely, respectfully, and friendly. It's almost like it's utterly lost in our society. So the only way that we bring that back is that if all of us individually learn how to have polite, respectful, friendly conversations where people can disagree with us and we don't feel like we have to attack them, that we can still remain polite, respectful, and friendly even when someone's disagreeing. So by practicing this, by sitting around as a family and discussing these good, wholesome teachings and helping them gain the wisdom, 
on all the various components of what it takes to attain enlightenment, now on their own, they will probably make the decision to maybe not pursue this relationship so aggressively. But if you go after that, then they're just going to dig their heels in. You've got to start at the beginning and kind of walk through and helping them learn these teachings that everything's impermanent. This boyfriend or girlfriend that they crave so deeply, this external satisfaction, it's not permanent. It's not going to last permanently. And you have to train them from the beginning and gradually bringing them up in these teachings. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes dedication. But these are the teachings that are going to guide your family. There's all kinds of self-help and parenting books out there that teach about parenting And I thought and I considered about purchasing some of those prior to my son being born. But then I realized that this is all you need. The Buddhist teachings, his teachings are all you need to guide your household. They all you need to guide your own life. And that's all you need to guide your own household. It's proven and tested 2,500 years. It's been in existence because they work. All these modern day philosophies and thoughts that we have, okay, they're interesting, but none of them are as complete as the Buddhist teachings. His teachings have been tested and proven over 2,500 years of history. And when you start learning these and seeing the improvement to your own mind, and then through that wisdom that you're now gaining, you can bring your family into it as well. As a family, you can now all support and encourage each other on this path to enlightenment And all of you can progress together and improve your practice and improve your household where now people are polite and friendly and respectful. You guys can disagree as family. You can have unique ideas and opinions, but you can talk about them. You can sit around together as a household and have discussions about things that you're looking to do together as a family. And people aren't selfishly pursuing their own desires but it takes work to get there. There's this ideal of what you can achieve, but then there's where you are now. And you've got to realize that that's going to be just a gradual pursuit, one decision after another. And that's your gamma, cause and effect, action and result. By you making the decision to bring these teachings into your family, you're going to see better and better results within the family unit. But it's going to take time and dedication. We have a question from Judith about politeness. Sometimes it's tricky to be polite and do right speech in a way that the person doesn't get offended. You can be polite and say, unlawful behavior isn't tolerated in my home. But the person takes that as fuel for more improper or unlawful behavior. Is there a way to learn how to gracefully go through these situations when it seems like right speech or not, it leads to difficulty? What I suggest for you in guiding your household is rather than pointing out where people aren't practicing. So when you say, you know, that isn't acceptable in this household, which is accentuating the negative. What I suggest you do is accentuate the positive. So a good 90% of your dialogue with your children and people in your household should be like when you see them doing something wonderful that you feel is really beneficial, when you see them talking polite and kind, or when you see them sharing or being generous or doing something that is without arrogance or ego or any of these good wholesome teachings that you see them practicing, point that out. 
and share that with them and say, oh, wow, mommy really likes it. You're being so kind with your sister. I love it when you do that, right? Oh, wow, that just changes everything. So instead of telling them all the things that they're doing wrong and accentuating the negative, accentuate the positive. It's almost like training an animal, right? Because all these unenlightened human beings are essentially functioning like an animal. Well, what do we do? We hold a little treat. We tell the dog, sit, sit, sit. And then when they sit, we give them the food and we pat them on the head. Good boy, good girl, you did a good job. And then the next time you pull out the treat, the animal like does it by themselves. You don't even have to tell them, right? They just sit because they know something good's coming. So children and even life partners and everybody around you, while you might not talk to them as a child or you might not talk to them like a dog, the mind and the consciousness functions exactly the same. They're going to be more likely to lean towards these positive, virtuous behaviors if you reward the positive. So with my son, I will often rub him on the head or I'll give him a hug or a high five or I'll even kiss him. I'll tell him how good he's doing. But occasionally, if he does something bad and we've talked about it multiple times, yeah, I'll have to say, hey, you know, we've talked about this lying too many times. You need to get rid of this lying. I don't want any more lying. You need to get rid of that, right? So I might kind of increase my tone just a little bit with my son and kind of be a little bit more direct on this negative behavior. But 90%, maybe even more, maybe like 99%, it's all about talking about the positive. And when I first started training him two years ago, I would almost kind of ignore a lot of the negative things that he was doing. And I would just talk about the positive things. And sometimes we'd just be driving in the car and I'll say, you know, yesterday I noticed with your mom, you were just talking so friendly and so polite. Wow, you know, that's amazing that you're talking that way. Daddy really likes that. Or whatever I used to talk about, right? And what I noticed is over a three to six month period of time, just focusing only on the positive things, he had a tendency to do more and more of those things. And he was doing them without me even asking him. And then after I got him up and running on the teachings, teaching him about the three universal truths at six years old, teaching him about the four noble truths, talking about the eightfold path gradually over time, the five precepts. Then once he kind of had all this baseline wisdom that he understood, then when he wasn't practicing the teachings, now I could show him. I could say, aha, Bailan, right there. Was that right speech? So he started teaching himself. So rather than saying, I don't like that harsh language, mister, you got to stop that. I would say, hmm, Bailan, remember we were talking about right speech last week? You remember those five factors? Let's just review them real fast. The first one, second one, third one. Okay, now everything that you just said to your mom, did that practice the five factors of well-spoken speech? No, daddy, that's not five factors. I didn't speak gently. Aha, so can you do that again? I would like to see you do that again with mommy. Say the same thing that you just said, but use some different words, some different phrases. Daddy would like to see you do this again, right? So by you being patient and guiding him this way and giving them a chance to do it over, because there's no way we can snap our fingers and our children and our partners and even ourselves are gonna instantly change our behavior. 
So acknowledging that my son made a mistake, reviewing with him what the teachings were, and then giving him a chance to redo it. And then he would practice and then he would get used to doing it over and over and over again. And now he's at the point where he, I never see him really talk bad to his mom, very rarely on a very rare occasion. But then right away we correct it and help him see where he's wrong, but he's actually teaching himself at this point. It's just me pointing out to him, was that right speech, Bailan? Daddy would like to check, was that right speech? And then sometimes he's like, no, it wasn't, Dad. Okay, well, which one of the five factors weren't you practicing? And then he'll, he'll go through them and he'll identify it. But that only comes with patience of learning and practicing. You've got to learn the teachings yourself, accentuate the positive, kind of ignore the negative for a while and just accentuate the positive and then start bringing in the teachings, the universal truths, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, get those laid down really well over multiple sessions and then you can help them to see where they're not practicing those good wholesome teachings. And as a family, you support each other and work together. Okay, we have three more questions, David. Would you like to take a number of those or would you suggest we answer those in the group Daily Wisdom? Uh, we can go ahead and ask them if people have questions. Sure, okay. Well, on the topic of parenting, Deborah asks, at what age should a child start to learn the teachings? I think they can start learning from almost from when they're in the womb and in birth, right? Because if the mom and dad are practicing the teachings very closely, and there's a lot of calmness and peacefulness in the household, even in the womb, you know, they're learning that. Where if there's a lot of hostility and anger in the household, that's baby even in the womb is learning that, right? So the parents have to really practice. And then when the child comes out and it's an infant, you know, the parents being very kind and very graceful, very compassionate, very loving, very kind with the child, even at one day old, one week old, three months old, they're learning that. They're learning that soft touch, that soft, gentle voice that the parents are practicing in the household. They're learning through all of that, even at infancy, right? And then as they grow up, you know, learning how to have respect at age two, three, four, learning how to have appreciation and gratitude, learning how to share, right? These are all things that they can be learning even in this, you know, two, three, four, five, six years old time frame. But by the time they're about six years old, from my experience, they can start understanding impermanence and they can understand discontentedness and they can understand some of these other teachings because they've been experiencing a little bit. They have a little bit of a capacity in the mind to now understand and you can make it fun. I used to go out with my son out into the forest and you know I pick up leaves dead leaves on the ground and I would teach him about impermanence about how the trees have green leaves but look this one's brown you see that's impermanence you know they're not always going to be green but they're not always going to be brown either and then I would crush it in my hand and it would fall apart and he would see this chain and I was like see this is impermanent so now we would play a little game and I would say, okay, can you find something else that's impermanent? Now that daddy showed you this, and now we would go around and we would play this little game looking for impermanence. And that would be like a week or two, not just that one little session, but then as we're driving down the road and we see something, I would be like, oh, look, that looks like impermanence. Or, 
you know, he would start pointing things out to me. So I think six years old is a good time to start laying down the real teachings like we learn in the book. But even before that, they're still learning. They're still learning politeness, respect, appreciation, gratitude, and all those other things. They're just absorbing it in a different way, not in a, you know, an activity or a Dhamma talk or something like that, but just through you practicing, they're learning the teachings. We have a question from Joy. I raised both of my kids the same and have always talked to them. I'm not authoritarian at all. They are teenagers, 19 and 16 now. My 16 year old is a much angrier person. I did go through a severe period of mental issues for a couple of years, a few years ago. My husband has never treated the two boys the same. Is there hope for the 16 year old? He absolutely does not want to watch these recordings to learn and meditate and balance. It has been a real struggle to guide him. Of course there's hope, you know, 16 years old. I mean, people are really struggling at that age, right? We should never give up on our children. They may struggle, they may have difficult times. You know, part of this is your own karma, right? Growing up now that he's 16 years old, you didn't have this wisdom of the Buddhist teachings as you were raising him. And what he's choosing to do and be angry and all of these things, these are his choices. It's his gamma. But part of that is your gamma coming back to you that you didn't have this wisdom to teach them as they were growing up. So they've learned some of this through you and your husband. So you should never give up. Yes, there's hope. But now might not be the right time. But that doesn't mean that there never will be a right time. And it's really challenging to teach a child that has gone through a lot of problems in those years, especially like, for example, in American culture. I know American culture is very tough for children kind of like 12, 14, 16, 18 years old. That time frame is very challenging and very difficult, but you should never give up. There is hope. You just have to learn more and more for yourself and practice deeper and deeper and deeper and continue to try to work in that direction. But ultimately understand that all the decisions that your children are making, it's their decisions. If he chooses to hold on to the anger, then that's his choice. But don't ever give up. And also don't be forceful. Don't try to force it. Don't try to push it on them because that's just going to make them turn away from it. We have a question from Judith as a follow up to her earlier question. Are there any resources where we can rehearse assertiveness, like a boot camp? Does that exist? Yeah, so there's retreats that you can go to. And once COVID is in the rearview mirror, then I'll start doing retreats here in Thailand. And also, I'm able to travel around the world because I have a U.S. passport. So I can go into people's community and like you can host a retreat with your friends and family and neighborhood people and just support me to come to your community. And we can spend time, you know, 10 days, 20 days, whatever, and meet for a few hours a day and help you learn and practice these teachings more deeply in a retreat environment. Because it's great. You guys can learn a lot and progress a lot like this now that we have technology available to us. But face-to-face contact really helps out a lot as well. And I think a retreat environment would be a situation where you can kind of observe more of having a teacher in your environment 
and seeing how they interact with people. And you can kind of model some of that behavior. Because while in the past I might have described things that I was doing as assertive, nothing that I do now I would consider assertive. I think assertiveness has that craving desire attachment, that longing, that strong eagerness. We can actually accomplish a lot more by not being assertive. We can learn how to have good word choices and we can guide people and we can accomplish things without being assertive. I am much more successful with my son, for example, when I'm not assertive. And like I said, now assertive isn't even part of what I do. I'm always kind of presenting choices to him and helping to guide him along the path and helping him to make choices. And he's the one who's ultimately making the choice and he feels good about that but I'm the one who's kind of laying out the choices for him. And I would be fine with any of the choices that he makes, but I'm kind of giving him two or three choices and then he's making the choice that's best. And then if I disagree with one of the choices that he makes, I'll tell him, I'll say, you know, Bailan, I kind of disagree with that choice. I'm not sure that that's the best choice in this situation. Why don't we talk about these other choices and about how they might be better for you? And then we talk about all those different choices. And ultimately, if he sticks with his original choice, I just say, okay, well, let's go with that. And he needs to see the results of that. But he also needs to feel the freedom that he actually made the choice. So we can actually guide our children much more through guidance. We can be more successful through guiding our children than if we're assertive with them. If you try to be assertive, it's going to come across as forceful and people don't like that. And you're going to find your children are going to be resistant, not just children, but adults are resistant to that too. So learning how to practice guiding people and doing it without expectation is a very important skill as part of this path. Thank you, David. We have no more questions. Okay. Well, I'm glad we got to those last few questions there. And I would like to say thank you for attending today's class for participating. I think all of your questions and the things that you guys are thinking about are right on. I really have an enormous amount of gratitude and respect and appreciation for all of you to learn and practice these teachings. I really appreciate any donations and offerings that you guys have given of your time, your effort, your energy, or your resources to help me do what it is that I do whether you're sharing posts or suggesting for people to listen to the podcast or videos or anything that you're doing in terms of helping others to get access to these teachings with your friends and family, or if any of you have made any offerings to me, I always thank you individually every time there's an offering made. If you didn't get a thank you from me, it's because of the impermanence of email because I always send out thank yous and appreciation, but sometimes those things go to spam or because of impermanence, it just doesn't come through. So I would like to take this opportunity to just say thank you for all the donations because what you do in your life to work and sustain your life and acquire certain resources for you by you sharing those with me through donations, it actually helps me to help you. And I really greatly appreciate 
all of those donations and all the time, effort, energy, and resources that you share to help me accomplish the goals that I have here to share these teachings with the widest audience possible. So by you sharing in that way, you are producing merit. You are eliminating this craving, desire, attachment through sharing and practicing generosity, but you're also providing resources that would not only help you to learn these teachings, but you're also helping lots and lots of other people to learn these teachings as well. Because I provide these teachings openly and freely to all people, regardless of whether they ever make a donation or not. But by doing that and by offering a donation, it really does help me. So thank you to everyone for sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources in producing merit. So have a very wonderful day, and we'll see you on our next talk. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.